Hi folks, Matt Harmsworth here, host of the Ask the R podcast. Today I am coming to you from Edinburgh, where I have travelled down to see Joe and Ethan from Yala Impacts. Joe is the founder of Yala Impacts, and I am delighted to welcome you both onto the podcast. Joe, over to you. First off, should we get the elephant in the room out of the way? How on earth do we pronounce this, and and where where's it come from? And you can tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, and how we've got to to where we are now. Pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me along today. Um, yeah, I'm going to apologise in advance. I'm not Gaelic speaking, um, but I'm going to go with Yala Impacts. And um, I did ask a, a very good Gaelic friend to pronounce it for me, and I did actually record it as a voice note, so I kind of try and play it back to myself to remind myself every now and then. <laughs> so I'm going to blame Ailey if that didn't work out. Um, so Yala Impacts, yeah. So in short, I was inspired by a book or, uh, written by John Elkington called Green Swans, and Yala is Gaelic for swan. Right. And the book Green Swans is all about the systems and structure change required in society to help us meet the response required to the climate emergency. So it's quite a big subject, quite a big topic. Um, it's all about, as I said, system and structure change. Um, and the timing of it, of reading the book, uh, was was doing a lot of research and thinking around uh, the lead up to COP26 last year, um, led me to make the leap to want to start my own practice and to be very um, fundamental in my, in my architectural and the built environment approach to respond to the climate emergency using this system and structure change approach. So very fortunate um, working with a group of um, people in Edinburgh um, on an uh, initiative called SPACE. So SPACE is the Centre for Architecture and Carbon Environment. Um, it was led by um, Rab and Denise Bennett. Um, they've done a lot of work themselves um, within their company on, on um, uh, the built environment, low carbon technology and construction. Um, but they're also um, amazing um networkers and role models for for architects and other other disciplines within the construction industry so space was ran for five weeks during cop 26 as a multidisciplinary and um, pop-up with talks yes. and events uh, it was great for the idea of starting your own practice for having five weeks of um uh, pre-set up networking events basically for myself so <laughs> met everyone in in edinburgh and across the country came 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 to meet us all uh yeah and then off the back of that um and before christmas time set up yala impacts and um, set it up as a community interest company which is um uh, not for profit it's got an asset lock um and a couple of reasons for that one i was really interested in trying to understand a bit more about business and the sort of reporting to company's house. So reporting to company's house always has a financial bottom line, but with a community interest company, you're forced to have a social bottom line. And I thought that wow. that is a fundamental sort of reason, if you like, to challenge myself to always deliver on that. It's kind of interesting because architecture inherently thinks triple bottom line. So it mm-hmm. thinks about environment, it thinks about the, the human, like the first thing you think about is the, the human's journey and experience as they're walking in and out of a building. It's the first thing you teach someone in first year architecture. Um, and then you have to you think you've got, your client's got a budget, you've got financial constraints. So architects do fundamentally think triple bottom line, but I don't think the construction industry does at the moment. <laughs> Which, yeah. And, and I mean, Rewinding that slightly, from a practical perspective, how do you implement that when you start the client journey? When somebody comes to you and says, look, Joe, I love what you stand for. Mm. I've looked at your website. You're doing some fantastic Mm. work. How do you get that across to them? Yeah, it's quite interesting. So I think in the first instance, 
I'm just an architect and Ethan's just a child building sphere. So it's, it's, we just, we do that anyway. So we do, um, we do, we do designs, we do feasibilities, we do planning applications, we do condition surveys, we do heritage statements, we do the recognizable stuff. That's what we do. And then we just say, we report it on a triple bottom line. So we give them the thing that you, that you're expecting, the thing that you recognize, but we also give you the extra, we give you the added value. Right. So it's just, you get it anyway, whether you want it or not, that's just the way it's delivered to you. Um, and, and there's no extra cost, you know, it, it, as I said, it's inherent in what, what we, how we think and ha- what we do anyway, is just the way of the presenting of it mm-hmm. is slightly more explicit. So it's, it's e- easier to be measurable. So I think this is something that I was struggling, I've struggled with for a long time is that the fact that you architectures, you know, it's a, okay, it can be a business, but the fact that it's measured in fin- in finance in numbers and um, I sort of struggled with and then we've had a massive leap right now where we're measuring architecture and carbon so it seems sort of appropriate to force the third agenda the social yes. agenda to rebalance it again in terms of architecture so then it's almost like bringing bringing the architectural rule back to the, the forefront again and allowing the the triple bottle line assessment is what we fundamentally do anyway but now we're just trying to measure it to sort of um make it fair across the financial and carbon i love that because that means there's no barrier up front yeah so this we're not here to talk about me there's some (laughs) things that we do within our business which i won't go into that are um ecologically sound Mm -hmm. they Mm -hmm. we give back in our own little way Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we we don't need clients to rubber stamp that. We don't need yeah. the approval of anybody else. We're doing that because we believe that's the right thing yeah. to do. And I've often thought, is this something that maybe we could put as a as a yeah. as a headline and talk about it to potential customers? Mm. But I don't think so because I don't think we're there yet yeah. in the UK. Um, I think there's. I just think it's a massive barrier in terms of doing business with somebody at the moment, which is obviously totally wrong, but mm. that's the world we live in, isn't it? Yeah, it's that thing. So if you separate it off, you know, it's the, it's always stronger if it's a unity and combined together. If you if you, if you separate it off, it um, it's something that someone can take away. Whereas the the the, the fact that it that it, it has to be has to be part of it has to be part of the process. That triple bottom line thinking. No one can you saying that up front. You can't discount it. You can't. We can't be appointed for less than that's that's the only way that we sort yes. of operate um and i think i think that that was a massive part of what i wanted to try and set up in the business I suppose. and was that the main driver because you were working within an architectural practice before you yeah. went off on your own journey yeah definitely and i think um i was also really interested i've always had a thing about the sort of um duality of old and new and sort of um working with these so I always whenever a project early on days whenever a project came into the office with the existing building I was keen to sort of jump on that and sort of use the old and new and the, the creative response to that so then quite quickly realized that you come up a lot against a lot of barriers you might get innovated and the project sort of gets taken away from you a little bit so um you very much led by the contract contractor and great if you've got a really good contractor mm. um not not so much on the other side <laughs> um and then and then that, that that felt like a barrier to be the lead architect and the lead designer. So then going into conservation was felt like another step. So I'm a conservation accredited architect, and that felt like another step to regain the sort of architectural lead role as well, because the, the building's already there. There's a load of sort of rules and hoops, and people get 
clients get a bit sort of fearful around it. So it's really great to sort of feel a bit more empowered again as the, as the lead architect and sort of um, drive the process all, all the way forward. So that was, that was the second version. And then then working at um, GLM Architects and Building Spheres, it was great to see that every building being being cared for and taken account for, account for in that manner. And I suppose it's sort of taking the conservation skills that are quite high level for listed buildings, but applying them to the every building. And then just fortunately taking the creative design process um, and down the way as well. So yeah, so Yala very much looks at existing buildings, whether they're listed or not listed. Yes. Um, don't, don't mind who owns them. I don't know how. Don't mind how many they have. Um, and it's about um, helping everyone find the best, the best way to do a couple of things. One, maybe extend the material life of the building that they have. So there's something between the the use of the building and the material life of the building. I find really interesting in terms of carbon measuring and um, creative creative response to to build to building uses, changing use instead of um, um, instead instead of knocking it down, demolition, deconstruction. Um, and then and 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 setting everyone else with a, with a path with a plot of yeah. uh, or framework of how to progress forward through that. Yeah. And I'm I'm getting the impression here, <laughs> Joe, that there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of direction. There's a lot of blue sky thinking. As the founder, you're right up here coming <laughs> up with the fantastic uh, the, the the vision. You've got the vision, and Nathan, how? How do we go about implementing that in, in, in the real world? What are you looking to do to reduce your impacts on the climate on through client projects? It is, it is interesting that the connection between the two. And I think, you know, I think um, Joe's skill of being able to sort of bridge from the conceptual to the, the practical and loop, you know, loop between the two of them really is really what's informing a lot of the, sort of the sort of conceptual moves forward um and i think i think the fact that um she's conservation accredited means that you know that's inevitably a sort of um you know in the detail sort of look at things as well as that 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 sort of high level way of moving things forward and i, I think i think it all needs to be anchored anchored in reality like that um what is quite interesting is a point that joe made before which is about the sort of carbon the carbon calculation, which we're finding to be a bit of a bugbear, although it seems to be the the, the hook that a lot of our a lot of our clients are uh, a land a landing on, um, is that uh, now lots of people are asking for carbon calculation, and for better or for worse, um, we seem to be one of the few firms out there in the in the built environment, um, other than the really big like multinational um, consultancies, um, who are willing to go in for embodied carbon calculation. Right. Um, so that's a sort of as as a building sphere, being a jack of all trades, master of none. Um, my, uh, I've you know I've turned my hand to this to to try and because you know Joe's absolutely right. If you don't if you don't have a way of of put you know putting in in sort of some sort of tangible terms all of these things, then then how how do you ever balance across the three? So um, financial, social, environmental sustainability. So car- carbon's the thing everyone's alighted on. Um, so, so that that seems to bed it in reality. But again, you know, people find it very difficult to contextualize. We've been working on a very large project recently, and and this client was wanting to knock down a very large building and build build lots of new buildings. You know, we calculated that at fifty six thousand tons of carbon. Wow, right? Which sounds like sounds like a big number, but of course, very few people know what that. Yeah. What what, what does that mean? It's unrelatable, isn't it? What what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is this is um, the thing we talk about literacy. 
is that can we get people talking in these terms and familiar with them? So if you say say someone, oh, that building cost half a million pounds, everyone everyone knows, you know, has a feeling for what half a million pounds is or a hundred thousand or what have you. But when you but people don't have that feeling for carbon. So for instance, an interesting one about so um, fifty six thousand tons of carbon is about one um, percent of Scotland's annual carbon emissions, both territorial and non territorial. So it's about what you know. So you, know, so you can try and try and benchmark it like that. So, so from, from this sort of conceptual idea of trying to balance across all three areas, you know, that's the environmental one is the one that people, you know, people can sort of latch onto. So, so that then, then leads to the skills that we need to develop. But what, what's, what I do, what we both find hilarious is that all of these skills are already there. So people are like, Oh, well, how, how do you measure social sustainability? And, you know, Joe, you always say about being conservation architects and significance plans, you're already trained to do that. Yes, yeah, so this was that you know the architects design access statement, conservation architect heritage statement, or conservation management plan. That you're you're, I suppose, the problem that happens sometimes is it's kept at high level, so it's kept for the new build projects, kept for the capital project, or it's kept for the high high funded projects. Um, but architect architects inherently in no matter what project they are, they're thinking about the human scale and the human size, and they're thinking about the humans going to move the building, work for the building, and whether it's about the the, the listing status so it's the the, the the original designer or the 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 construction type or technology that was used those those principles can be applied to the every building so whether it's the the family the family generations who've lived through there or whether it's the the, the door handle for the many many school children that have passed across it you know there's, there's something there for social value in so many different ways and sometimes even the social value is the sort of um the the uh, the coherency, so the sort of group of buildings, the grouping, or the the um, the neighbourhood, or the the yeah, the sort of history that goes alongside that. So it's not might not necessarily be the material element in itself. It might be something sort of more intangible and more broader than that. And that is very hard to measure. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I guess probably for the listeners, it's distilling it down to mm. the point where they can see what the actual implications are to their project and what the financials yeah. look like it's like okay i and we come across a lot of demolition and rebuilds um some are architecturally stunning most aren't mm-hmm. and there have been projects where those houses have been demolished and kind of buried at the end of the garden mm. materials <laughs> and, and and everything and it, it's hard to believe but these are early career property developers and they're kind of finding their way is there is there an important message that we should be getting out to these people in terms of you just need to stop, you need to look at what you've got because that is actually going to have an impact on your bottom line in terms of your own business. Yeah, yeah. You you, you just need a creative consultant to look at your building stock and you'll be fine. So uh, you know it, it could be an architect, but it'll also be sort of a marketing team or branding team. You know, I always think that the simplest designs might be just a new new website or a new wayfinding thing or a new a new red front door that gives you a better identity on the street yes. um, that you know that, that's massive in terms of your 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 impact or your your outlook in, in the community or in, in your, your your business world that you're operating in uh, but it is, is quite might seem quite um low um low technology low tech way of doing it but i suppose that, that that's what it's about that sort of strategic thinking of okay my my building my material life is is fine if I keep repairing it, maintaining it, um, but there are other clever, creative things that I can do with my building stock right now before I 
before I need to do the, the great rush to, um, to upgrading or altering or uh, ultimately taking down. And I, and I think it's it's that st- taking the time to have that strategic look first. Have I bought the right building? Am I trying to do the right thing to the mm. right the right building? That's, um, that, that, that's, that, that's quite that's quite hard, and that that's quite that's a hard thing for even me as an architect to say. If someone comes to me, I get really excited about wanting to. Ooh, what can I make this plan turn into? I want to draw it, but actually, it's I need to go. I need to go back one step and go. Are you sure you've got the right brief for this building? Um, and that's a, another good thing about working with the building surveying um, side of things is they're already upstream or downstream however you want to think about it that they're then the sort of like the, the the operation phase of the building so they're doing maintenance they're doing building condition surveys so they're looking at how the building's operating right now and if you can add in at that stage the sort of creative viewpoint of oh and this is what you could do so next time there's a big repair job needed because of the material life you can do your creative intervention you can do your upgrade works based on that and then the client's client's got a really good lead in for like five years time of what what what's coming down line in terms of line in terms of their, their brief and their capital works and then you know if i if not i'm going to run around every building in, in in scotland and do that but if i could set that sort of play um in in quite a few um building um portfolios or um even councils i suppose or anyone who owns a group of anything if i can set that mindset in play then it, it's it's very it should should work out a lot better for the design teams who are then getting the briefs of these um cl- of clients, which will empower them to to do the right thing in terms of the carbon and the environment and the social agenda eventually. And is there a legislative piece missing here <coughs> in terms of because which, which we've seen, <laughs> we've seen we've seen big changes in the uh, in the environmental space particularly within our own business in terms of ecology. So we've got biodiversity net gain. And the implementation of that is falling down massively at the moment, probably because a lot of local authorities, because of COVID, are looking at ways they can perhaps bring money within to the local authority. And where there are projects that we have seen where there could be ecological enhancements at that particular scheme in terms of bat boxes, bee boxes, um, green roofs and things like that. But the local authority is saying, no, 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 we don't think you can do that at that site. We'd much rather have a financial contribution and we'll do something elsewhere Mm. in the borough. And that whole piece, that whole biodiversity net gain piece at the moment is is quite messy. And the application of it across the UK is Mm. um, it's totally inconsistent at the moment. Mm. Uh, so you've got some London boroughs that are enforcing it in one one way, and others that are completely off the list. So I, I would imagine there's there's some parity there. Is there is there anything in place at the moment from a legislative perspective, or is there anything on the horizon where there's going to be people have to have the they have to have the building assessed and they have to present a calculation that says, do you know what? Actually, twenty percent of this building is recyclable or can be reused within the, the, the context of the new development, and that's what you're going to have to do, yeah. get on with it. I think it's probably two, two or three things just at the top of my head just when you were thinking there. So I think one, sort of in order, I suppose, one um, is the starts, it happens a little bit in London already, in planning applications, they have like cir- circular economy um, yes. statements, or or what the kind of thing that we're talking about is pre-demolition audits, so anything, anything 
anything is getting done to a building in terms of removing something, there needs to be some sort of an assessment around that. Um, so that would be great if that, that could sort of spread a bit further north and um, um, other boroughs could, could adopt that. And then in terms of building um, regulations, if we could bring in the embodied carbon, um, that would be great. And there's a massive push to try and get that through um, all the very various governments and councils right now. Um, and then I think the third thing that's quite heavily coming down the line in terms of passive house um, type builds for new builds is post-occupancy evaluation. Yeah. And I think the sort of post-occupancy of, of the architectural work dovetails really nicely with the building swing in terms of maintenance and repair work and it's it not we should we should architect shouldn't be afraid of it we should um embrace it and it will ultimately either spin off it off into more capital project works um become a kit of parts in terms of lessons learned and you know knowledge sharing because there's so much going on right now in the industry that we all will need to learn all need to know about we're all trying to figure it out separately but also collectively as well um, and the more that we can share, the better, and the more that we can report, report back, the better. So I think, yeah, they're probably the three sort of legis- legislatively type things I'd say from right now. Yeah, it's an interesting one in that uh, the UK Parliament is considering um, approved document Z. So in, in England, the building regulations are, you know, A to, a to whatever. So they, um, a group brought forward this approved document Z, which shows how embodied carbon uh, could be part of the building regulations and then we know that scotland is is looking at something yeah. looking at something similar i think the thing about circular use of materials i always think is you've got to think of it in supply and demand terms so what what's going to encourage people to carefully deconstruct buildings and that's a planning um you know it's the planning piece that joe was talking about just there so if you go in for planning for something should you be asked for this circularity statement pre-demolition audit so how we're recovering materials where are they going to and then you've got the demand side so if you've got an embodied carbon cap so you can only emit x amount of carbon building your building materials that come from a previous project they don't they turn up with zero embodied carbon because they've you know ex, you know they they expelled it all on the previous building so if you've got to hit a cap and you're getting some materials which count as having zero so then you're you're going to hit your, your your carbon budget now scottish futures trust are making um, a whole bunch of public buildings have these embodied carbon caps to sort, sort of test this principle. But I don't think anyone's really connecting that with the circular economy mm. just yet. So if you can do both things, so the planners say, we want a pre-demolition audit, and building regs say, you've got an embodied carbon cap, hopefully someone out there in the big consultancies who's doing this work will connect the two and realise the answer is the circular economy. It's, it's interesting, just when we're talking through all this, that there's a, there's a bit in the back of my brain that's just going... Oh, it's so nice. We're sort of, it's like we're, we're having to really quickly retrain ourselves just to be, 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 be sensible. So, um, you know, you think of your grandparents and the sort of how, how long they repaired and maintained and adapted and reused things for different uses. Sounds quite nice, cushy way of putting it, I suppose, um, or cute way of putting it. But um, I think that there's that. That, that that approach and that mindset and that ideology is exactly where we sort of need to be getting back to. And I, I see it quite easily because I do conservation work. So the conservation work, it it's sort of there already. And all, all, say all we need to do, what would be great if we could do is just draw those skills down into the every building approach. Um, so the sort of the lack of green sk- skills sector, if we could sort of piggyback the green skills off everything in the conservation sector to the every building that that sort of um 
that specification process and that supply chain process all sort of exists. It's just, it's at a high level at the moment. And it's the idea of um, bringing it to everything. It's interesting. It's interesting when you say about grandparents. So Mm -hmm. I always go back to the fact that like my, one of my grandfathers was a rag and bone man. Mm -hmm. So he, he was collecting things that people didn't need and he was finding value in that to have a viable business. Now, if you think we don't have rag and bone men anymore, and what, so what we've seen over the last hundred years is this, this deterioration in, in the value we place on, on fabric, on everything, you know, whether it's a pair of jeans or a dress or food or our building fabric. And you were talking before about, um, you know, these, these developers, you know, just knock it down and start again. It's because they don't value, they don't value it. In fact, actually it's an well, impediment. We well, well, oh, sorry, we, 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 we go very deep here as, can't as, you? As, a, as a society, but I suppose, I suppose I, th- I think one of the things we've alighted on is the importance of, say, calculating carbon or social value is it elevates the it elevates the value of it to all of us. And maybe it's pointing out things that we know in our gut, yeah. but then in our business lives, we don't act on that. Whereas if Joe and I do a nice professional looking report that has all like numbers and analysis and diagrams, it, what it's doing, it's bringing that valuation of, of fabric that we all think, I think we all feel in our hearts outside of work. It's bringing it into that work conversation. And so actually when you ex- explain the significance of things in, in that way, people's decision-making, not always, but it's, it starts to change it. And that's it's, it's elevating the significance of and value of things to people. People just want everything instantly these days. Um, and, you know, that... that that is that is part of it. I don't know how it is for you guys, but certainly for us, when we get a customer come to us, there's normally some sort of immediate problem that they need solving. Um, and it might not necessarily be the problem that they think they've got either. Uh, when you've been around the block, you start to identify problems, don't you, that, that um, are further down the line, but it's something that should be addressed now. But often there's a there's a fee associated to that, which 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 puts up that barrier. But yes, people are uh, they're very used to having instant consumption, cyber zombies as I call them, scrolling through the phone <laughs> all day, all day, all day, um, and not really looking looking outside the box. So there's there's an educational piece that feeds into this as well, isn't there? At, at, at some point, whether that's starting right down at grassroots level with children in school now. Um, and then that feeding, feeding so up the up the chain. Yeah, um, it's so lovely. I, I got to go and make um, my daughter's school the other day for the first time because she'd not be able to go in because of COVID. But um, the student groups were doing their talks about um, their own little groups that they have in terms of equality and the eco group, and it was just it's just fantastic to see that level, that sort of natural level of thinking before any any of the sort of the business worlds come to, come into their mindset. Um, it's so core to them. It's so easy for them to understand and yes. and, and digest. And I suppose it's it's for us then and it, our, our generation to make sure that that space stays safe for them to grow up into it, so they can keep that mindset going forward and do all the things that you know we, we're hoping we need them to do. Um, I'm very lucky as well. I get to tutor at Sala, so uh, Edinburgh School of Landscape and Architecture. Right. And um, just the first time I've ever done it. So um, this year, I've just been doing first year part time, one day a week. And um, the the course leader there, Laura, she's fantastic. She sort of th- this year, I, mean, I don't know what it's like in other years, but this year, she's got um, three existing buildings and three existing community groups. So the first year, students were able to go out and survey and measure the existing building and understand the sort of inherent value of the materials, if you like. And it's 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 role and importance in in the community, and then likewise interview the community group and ask mm. them what they thought was important and what they thought their their values were. 
And then for the students, the challenge was to then add their creative, you know, um, creative input into it to raise the value of the existing community centre. So to, you know, the, the community saying, we need a new community centre, but actually the creative process in that is that those students were able to show or demonstrate to community community groups the opportunity of that by retaining something, you can still do a creative number on it and make it benefit or and beneficial to the where, where do you think the major house builders fit into this parcel? Because... <sighs> I suspect that there's a very well thought out answer heading this way. But one of the things that really frustrates me, I, I started my career as a, as a tree surgeon. Well, I was a countryside ranger, actually, by trade. And then I moved into tree surgery and countryside contracting and eventually a boricultural consultancy. But one of the things we were heavily involved in was um, uh, was biomass back in, the, back in the early days. Now, there's huge issues around that. I don't see why chipping a tree with a 1,500 horsepower chipper into um, a ship on the other side of the world and then take, bringing all that wood chip across to North Wales and burning it in a power station is green, but that, that's a different <laughs> conversation. But where I'm going with this and what, what it links to me, up, up in Inverness near our office, we've got a lot of new housing schemes popping up all mm. over the place. Every single one of them is having a gas boiler put in because mm. they're 700 quid line item mm. or whatever. Why there aren't district heating schemes going in, why these things aren't being thought of on a much more community level basis. So I guess my question to you is, is surely getting the major household, uh, house builders on board at some point, how do we do that? Is that, can that only be done through legislation? I'm going to take you back a stage, I guess, because um, the conservation architect in me wants to figure out why the, why the output is the way it is. So why we're building new housing. So then I go back a stage and I go, why, why do we have a, a lack of housing where we need new housing? And then my brain wants to say the reason is because we're not very good at repairing and maintaining the ones that we have. Um, and we, 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 what's the right phrase, maybe like empty, empty neighbourhoods. So we make existing neighbourhoods get sort of um, broken up by making things, shopping centres out of town as opposed to supporting the sort of local high street and creating the 20 minute neighbourhoods. So I think at the moment we're seeing a sort of um, a symptom, if you like. And mm. um, what, but at the same time, what I know, what councils and um, government are trying to do is treat the cause. So by putting a bit more effort into the the twenty minute neighbourhood approach and the public transport and the sort of the last mile, if you like, so encouraging everyone to be able to walk to the public tra- transport and having that that final safe cycle route or network or everything. I think that's massively important in terms of making the communities and net buildings that we have work and more desirable so people don't feel the pressure or the need or the inability to live there that they the pressures on the new housing out of out of town and then when the new pressures on the housing out of town then we just we just i think we come up against the um one a better word the financial gap between what the market wants to pay for property Mm. so us the homeowners and what the what the the balance sheet says and in terms of numbers and then in terms of the energy side of things i think that's a complex web as well because i think there's what wants to get done and what's actually available in the in the grid at the minute like how far along all all those industries are and i and i know i do know some householders are desperately trying to get get it right and to make it work and but then the pressure's on from the market and because they need the new housing 
because they need your housing because yes. the inner city properties are not being on the any existing properties are not being repaired and maintained so it's just a cascade of consequences as opposed to as opposed to one person having one set of you know the developers or whatever having to take responsibility for it it's the whole way through the construction industry where we're all collective yeah i just need to get on repairing more buildings basically <laughs> yeah yeah but it's, 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 it's definitely the way forward we um uh did a tree survey last week um and i won't say where it is because it'll be blindingly obvious and really really easy to look up uh, but there is a school in the highlands that is uh, being demolished uh, because it's not fit for purpose to build a new um build a new school and from what i can see from the plans the old original school from the 1930s 1940s is going to be demolished because yeah. they've had a suite of bat surveys etc done on it um and that just says to me straight away that they're they're probably thinking of uh, demolishing it and there must be an opportunity there to, uh, to 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 reuse that so it's it's this i think we can all get on board with the concept um mm. And I think it's critically important that we travel mm-hmm. in that direction with incremental steps towards improvement. Um, what's the single biggest thing that we could do to start our journey? Ooh, that's interesting. Uh, before you said the single biggest thing, where I was, my brain was going to was in financing, actually. So it's a sort of um, long-term, longer-term business models and ha- how to help with that because the, the upfront cost for things are, is... That will co- will cost more. It will cost more to do low, low embodied carbon. It will cost more to retrofit and repair to a standard that we sort of want to have things at or expect to have things at now. So I think if there's a, 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 a better models um, in terms of the, a longer return on that instead of a, a quicker return, mm. I think that that would help. I think there's an interesting one um, in Edinburgh at Granton where it's I'm going to get the words wrong, but it's, it's slow finance. Sort of slow finance, where where no one's looking for a return on investment over five years, not even twenty five years. It's a fifty year play with the finance, which I think is really interesting because um, you tend to plan these buildings to have a design life, and this is another conversation <laughs> which we can get into. Um, but if you if you if you plan your building to have a sixty year life, and yet the finance needs to pay itself back over thirty, there's a misalignment there. Yes. Um, and so I think I think aligning aligning the finance cycle with the with the building cycle and with the use case cycle. So again, it's it's, it's pe- material life. Cycle. Yeah, material <laughs> material life cycle. But but again, you know, we get back to that you know triple bottom line. You know, social, environmental, financial. When they're misaligned, it's when that's when we make bad decisions. That's why there's no point reporting on just one of those things because it's not it, it, you're not actually looking at the whole. So yeah, if the finance is misaligned with the building fabric and with the yeah. with the social use of it, that that tends to engender the wrong decisions. That's, that, that's, yeah, that's huge. That's huge. <laughs> that's, um, that's something that people are definitely going to take away from this, I think, because <laughs> it, it, it's so often uh, in the built environment, it all comes down to numbers, doesn't it? At, mm. at, at the end of the day, there's either somebody looking to make a profit somewhere mm. um, or they're struggling. Uh, we, we, we've even, we've had scenarios where... Um, the financing for a project has been dependent on our surveys mm. coming in. So it's a massive, massive thing. Yeah. Guys, I know you're pushed for time. I've taken up a lot of your time already. Is there one final piece of uh, information you would like to get out there on this podcast to our listeners? And then I'll ask you how people can get in contact with you. 
Brilliant, thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so was one of the things that I was just thinking back in my mind there was um, meantime uses. You know, if you don't know what you're doing with your building, um, you can you can use it in the meantime. <laughs> you know, you can you don't need to mothball it. You don't need to wait for the five year planning application. You can you can get on and use it now. And I think that in terms of a financing model and in terms of um, ma making sure communities are active, I think I think that's massively important and, and not to be missed. And even if it's just your your front windows got something in it that meantime use is massively important that's brilliant that's brilliant i will put all your contact details in the show notes but how can people get in contact with you what's the easiest way to get in contact with you yes our mobile number and email just on the website uh which is uh yala which is e-a-l-a impact uh, as you'd expect it to be spelled i-m-p-a-c-t-s dot co.uk or dot com gets to the the website it's fairly straightforward right now um so yeah the contact details won't be hard to find that's perfect. Nathan, Joe, thanks a lot for your time and I will speak to you soon.